I think, as you know, we've been in an impromptu, unplanned sermon series in the Psalms. Uh, because when Karen and I came back from Little Rock, we needed to really just look at God. And so, you know, sometimes sermon series, are, it's, it's all about the pastor, right? And uh, God willing, uh, benefit flows to you as well. I mean, you can never go wrong being in the Psalms. It is simply undiluted awe. To look at God in the Psalms is, in fact, perpetually astonishing and breathtaking, and it's just a beautiful thing. And um, so, I think this will be the last one. I'm not sure. The Lord has reminded me that I have failed to speak about several important issues this year, and I'm running out of calendar. So, we may move on. Um, but I did want to go to Psalm 63. It seemed like a, a, a great way to finish what we've been talking about. As you know, we've been talking about, as we've been talking with the young adults, about that you must have God. And the way we've been saying it, because of the book that we're studying with the young adults, is you must have awe. And every human being is hungry for awe. And every human being in the world is seeking for some kind of way to fill up that all deficit in their soul. And many people try to find their solution in the world, which is futile, and as Tripp has been saying to us, will always end in uh, disappointment. We must have God. And I, I was studying earlier today, and the word forget just came to my mind. Some of you in here are born again and you love Jesus Christ. But you sometimes forget. You just simply forget. As I said to you last week or the week before, <laughs> you're living a miracle. You are a miracle. Um, you have a hundred trillion cells in your body. Every one of them is a biological miracle. And we forget. From our DNA on up, it's all miraculous. It's all miraculous. And if we're thinking men and women, it will drive us to worship. We must have God. We know God's there, Romans chapter 1. We know He's there. We must have Him. And what I've been saying to you for the last six or seven weeks, you have to cultivate this in your life. And we've been hearing it in the Psalms. Why is David in awe? Because he cultivates awe. He's in pursuit of God. Amen? Some of you cannot honestly look in the mirror and say, I am in pursuit of God. You can't do it. You can't be a Christian. You can be a churchgoer, but you can't be a Christian if you are not pursuing God. You know... We've been talking about it. You don't just wake up in your fallen state even if you're born again. You don't just wake up and, and want God. God's not the first thing that comes to your mind. You tell me, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you wake up in the morning? You! You're the first thing that comes to your mind. This is what Tripp has been saying to us in this book. We've substituted ourselves for God. We've all done it. 
Okay, this is the pure this is the pure definition of sin. Eve put herself where God was. She wanted to put herself there. That's why the the the, the adversary was able to trick her into being like God. Let me remind you of the definition of all reverential respect, veneration, amazement, wonder, fear, and terror. I know some of you are uncomfortable with that last word. But if we have any if we just have average knowledge of the Bible, we know that men and women who came into the glorified presence of God, <laughs> there was terror. He is other. He is holy. You're not. Only, only in the person of Jesus Christ can we come to the consuming fire God. Just want to remind you before we move on of the quotes I've been sharing with you from Tripp. Paul David Tripp. His book entitled Awe. He's an American theologian. Whether you know it or not, and you have to know it by now, this will be the seventh week or eighth, you're in a lifelong pursuit of awe. There is an awe longing in you, and misplaced awe will keep you perpetually dissatisfied. Now, if you're a dissatisfied person, <laughs> you've got an awe problem. It's all vertical. <laughs> okay? It's all vertical. You say, Jim, I'm not satisfied with X. I'm not satisfied with Y. I'm not satisfied with Z. Okay, then stop, you know, preoccupying on those things and look at God. Look at your Creator. Look at your Redeemer. Be in awe. Cultivate it. It's why David lived this extraordinary life. Yes, David fell in an extraordinary way. David repented. And he got back up and he finished with God. Amen? This is what believers do. This is what true believers do. Every problem you think you have, it's vertical, ultimately. I'm not diminishing the, the flesh and blood problems we have here. But I am saying, ultimately, we give it to God. If we're believers, we can give everything to God and we can sleep at night. We're in awe of the One who holds the world and every nanosecond in His hand. Lastly, if awe of God is not central in your life and in your worldview, you will not look at anything properly. <laughs> if you're not in awe of God, you're in awe of yourself or in awe of some pursuit you're interested in. And you think that's going to make it happen for you. You know, I've got... I was at home this last summer and some of the guys I played football with, we all got together. And it's just sad. Some, are, some of them are still the same person. It's like, they're still the same person they were. You know, same jokes. Same... Yeah, it was awful. It was, it's, just, it's just sad, you know? It's just sad. God has redeemed us to grow into the likeness of Jesus. So, as I got into Psalm 63 this week, David is in the wilderness. The backstory: Absalom is in revolt and David has fleed to the wilderness. His son has rised up against him. There's an armed insurgency against David. He's in the wilderness. He's got a lot 
on his mind. <laughs> and what is the first? So you tell me. Somebody read for me Psalm 63, verse 1. Tell me what it says. David, David's world is actually coming unwound right now. Okay? I want you to understand this. His son has probably pierced him with the greatest pain he could imagine. What does David say? 63, verse 1. Somebody read it. Anyone? Okay. What is David doing? What have we been seeing David and the psalmist doing? Good circumstance, hard circumstance. You know, countless blessings in my life. I can't even begin to count them. Or lean times. What are the psalmists always doing? They're looking at God there in awe. They don't fixate on circumstance. Some of you, just like me, we have a tendency to just fixate on the problem. God doesn't mean for His people to fixate on the problem. It's like Kadesh Barnea all over again. The guy said, no, we can't go in. The people are giants. There are too many of them. The cities are fortified. We can't do it. Well, we talked about it Wednesday night in Young Adult Bible Study, right? They're looking at the wrong thing. What should we be looking at? If we're true believers, what should we be looking at? God. And He always changes the calculus. Amen? He always changes the calculus. So as I got into Psalm 63, you can see David's, David's core happiness is Jehovah. David's core confidence is Jehovah. The core of David's being is Jehovah God. You are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. Is that true of you? If it's not true of you, you haven't met Him yet. Because <laughs> if you've met Him, you know He's the only one that can quench your soul. You know He is. Yeah, God's put a lot of cool stuff in the world, but there's nothing here that compares to Him. What does it gain the man to, you know, what, what, what profit is it to a man to gain the whole world? Which is nothing compared to Jesus. There's no profit in it. As I, as I went into the psalm and I realized, you know, um, what does the world say will complete a man or a woman or make him happy, he or she happy? What does the world say? So when you want to know what the world says, what do you do? You call a ratio. And you say, how do, I, how do I search for this in Google? No, you just Google it. What makes human beings happy? I Google it. I got 250,000 to 2 million hits. Obviously, I didn't look at 2 million sites. But I did find one site. Uh, it was entitled, Seven Habits of Incredibly Happy People. Okay, how many incredibly happy people do we have in here? None. Oh, we have one. Okay. We have one incredibly happy person. I would, I would have thought the, the Dutch girl that grew up in England would be happy, but, <laughs> uh, but I know she is. Here's what, here's what, the, here's what, the, here's what it says. The, these are the work habits or the habits of incredibly happy people. Meaningful work, close relationships, exercise, mastery of some skill, 
Experience over the material, meaning doing rather than owning. And the pursuing of your itch or dream chasing. And when I was going through these sites, I realized that only a handful of them talked about the spiritual component of mankind. And when they talked about the spiritual component, you know, it was only mentioned in light of the fact that it's really kind of a coping mechanism, right? Not that there's any real importance or value to the spiritual dimension of man and what that might mean, but it was a coping mechanism, kind of a utilitarian view of God. And you know, if you were here last week, I got a little excited about that. I hate this thing that's in the modern church, the so-called modern church, that we love God because He'll give us stuff. I hate this. I hate it with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I hate it. It's blasphemy. That you would love God merely that He might give you some more stuff. Well, let me be clear, and you know this if you're biblically literate, God will not be used by you. That's not what He does. He will not be used by you. If it's your idea or notion that I'm going to use this biblical God because I, I hear you know, He blesses His people with health, wealth, and prosperity. If that's your driving motivation, I say you need to go elsewhere. God will not be used. He will not be a component of your happiness. As C.S. Lewis says, um, how does he say it? God will not be distracted with your temporal happiness. If you're His... <laughs> He has way bigger plans for you than that. And what I'm saying to you, as you enter into those plans, you actually discover your happiness. But the happiness is, is not, the, 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 you know, it's not the, the ultimate goal of God that you would be temporally happy. The ultimate goal of God is that you come into conformity with His Son. And when you come into conformity with His Son, then you find the joy of God and the happiness of God, I want to say to you, we'll get into the text, I want to say to you, you know, how many of you learned the Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Anybody ever, anybody learn this? Okay, I learned this in the 70s in high school. Yeah. A long time ago. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, it's comparable to what I just read to you from the Habits of seven, seven, uh, seven habits of incredible, incredibly happy people. And I won't go through it, but what I want to say to you, it's a pyramid of needs. What I want to say to you, you need Jesus more than you need any of this. And I'm, I'm saying, you need, you need the bread of life, Jesus Christ, more than you need bread. If you don't know that you need Him more than you need bread, then you haven't understood your need you haven't understood the desperate situation you're in before God apart from Jesus Christ. You need the bread of life. You need Him more than you need physical bread. You need the living water more than you need water. How long can a man live on average without water? About three days. If you don't get water, you're probably going to be gone in three to four days. I'm saying to you on the authority of the Word of God, you need Christ more than you need water. And if you don't understand that yet, you're still deluded. You're still deceived. You must 
have God. You must have God. You need God. I know the world doesn't understand this, but we have the Word of God. And we also have, we also, although we don't know our hearts well, we know we need awe. We know we are estranged. And we know we need a Savior. Verse 1, <laughs> You are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. Let me ask, how many? Okay, no, you don't have to raise your hand. Are you seeking God earnestly? And what does that look like? You should be able to just jot this down. This is what it looks like in my life. This is what it looks like that I, I seek God earnestly. This is what it looks like. Concrete things going on in my life that reveal that I am a seeker of God. Not just passively, but earnestly is what the text said. Why is David in awe? Why does he fight giants? Because he earnestly seeks God. And what is the promise of God in Jeremiah 29? If you seek Me, what? You will find Me when you search for Me with all of your heart. We talked about about three weeks ago that Christianity is radically personal. I think it was Psalm, I think it was Psalm 139. I didn't note it. It's radically personal. We either know Him or we don't. We love Him or we don't. We worship Him or we don't. We walk with Him or we don't. It's as simple as that. You know. It's all personal, right? Fearfully and wonderfully personal as we were talking about. And you know that there are other psalmists who talk like this. I read it to you at the beginning of the service. Psalm 42.1 As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. Psalm 73.25 whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth? Is that how it is with you and Jesus? You say, Jim, I'm not quite sure what I'm, I'm saying to you in love as your pastor. And that, that's where you need to be with you and Jesus. That's where you need to be, or you don't have a healthy relationship. It can't just be I come to church some, and I read my Bible some. And sometimes I pray because I'm guilty that I don't. This is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is seeking and knowing and falling hopelessly in love. <laughs> That's Christianity, man. That's what it is. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here of um, verse 1. He says, you know, the guy that wrote the Message Bible, he says, he says, God... You're my God! Exclamation point. I can't get enough of you! Okay, you ought to put that, like, you know, tape it to your mirror or above your bed in the morning on the ceiling. Just tape it up there. That should be our starting point. That's our starting point for the day. Everything else is subordinate. I don't care. You know, what was it Martin Luther used to say? He said, man, i got so much to do today. How did he used to say it? I can't remember. This is what happens when you're my age. I'll get back to you on that. But he said something cool about it. I remember that. You guys know who Martin Luther is. Um, the psalmist says, Besides you, I desire nothing on the earth. This is what it's like 
for the true believers. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 81.15 Those who hate the Lord... This is one of the most convicting verses I think I've ever read. You know, we have some friends from the States. You guys may know Dal and Jan. Uh, they've been around for a while. and They have a ministry they, like, they do over here. And... and uh, we use their materials for women's Bible study. and Anyway, we're having a long talk about our home country, America, and there's just a lot of turmoil in America, you know, a lot of cultural divide. And, um, you know, the church will, will most likely over the next decade will be thinned out because it will become increasingly costly to be part of the church. If the culture continues in the direction that it's, been going the last 10 years or so. The lukewarmers aren't going to hang around anymore. There'll be too much cultural pressure, right? Too much cultural heat to hang around in the church that actually preaches the Bible, which in some places is called hate speech now. But I, I remind you, it's love speech. You've got to love somebody. You, you, have, to love, you have to love people enough to, to share the gospel, you know? You have to love people enough to share the truth. Psalm 81.15, those who hate the Lord pretend obedience to Him. That is one of the most convicting verses I think I have ever read. I'm going to read it to you again. Those who hate the Lord pretend obedience to Him. So all, I, all I'm trying to do, I'm just trying to exhort you and myself, Let's not pretend, right? Let's not pretend. Let's be like David. Let's be a God seeker. Let's seek God earnestly. It should be a priority every day. I'm seeking God. What does it look like? I'm in the Word. I'm in prayer. I'm in obedience. And I think obedience is like takes you to a whole new level. God knows you're seeking Him when you step into obedience, particularly costly obedience. So, yeah. Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, what? You guys know. What did Jesus say? If any man is thirsty, what? Let him come to me. I know you're all thirsty. Every human being on the planet is thirsty. I'm not talking about physical thirst. I'm talking about the hole in your heart. You know, Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in the heart of man. Your, desire, your heart's a desire factory. You need God. You, need, you know you need something. When what I'm saying to you is you need God. Most of you already know that. Verse 2, Thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. We keep seeing this in the Psalms. David is always talking about corporate worship. Yes, David can worship the Lord in the wilderness. Of course he can, but he's always talking. He always brings us back, and other psalmists as well, bring us back to corporate worship. He says, I'm in the sanctuary, man. I'm going to be with God's people. That's who I am. I'm going to be with God's people. Well, bring it into our context. Sunday's not on the bubble. I build my week around Sunday. Sunday's not negotiable. We talked a lot about it last week simply because it was in the psalm. The, the psalmists just keep hammering this. 
We are with the people of God. We are under the preached Word of God. It's part of the thing I've been talking to you about. Cultivating awe. How do you cultivate awe? One way is to be with the people of God and sit under the preached Word of God. So, it's one of my most disappointing, it's one of the most disappointing things about being a pastor. Is you run into folks and, and, and I, I, hey, I get there's a whole different dynamic. There's a whole different dynamic for internationals. I, I, I understand. But it's just always tentative with so many folks. It's just always tentative. If, I, if something better doesn't come up, I'll see you Sunday. They don't say that. But it's like, you know, it's like, well, let me say it this way. As a pastor, it's what I hear. Okay? And maybe that's, maybe that's my fault. So, I know this doesn't matter to a lot of so-called Christians, but I really think it matters to God. Or we wouldn't keep bumping into it. We've only done like six or seven psalms, and I think we've hit it three times. Being in the sanctuary. What does David see in the sanctuary? Power and glory. We're talking about awe, right? We're talking about, about what we've been talking about for six or seven weeks. Awe! That's what he's talking about. It's why he lived like he lived. He cultivated awe in his life. And I've told you the story. Cool things happen at church. I got saved at church. <laughs> okay? I was just going because my mom, it made my mom happy. And some guy stood up, he read the Bible, and it was, bam, like I heard him. I heard him. Everything changed for me. And I was just a good little Baptist boy sitting in my little chair and couldn't wait to leave so I could go watch the Dallas Cowboys. You know? And God invaded my life. All I'm saying to you is good stuff, amazing stuff, beautiful stuff. Power and glory happens in the sanctuary. Power and glory happens in the church of God. You know the commandment. We'll move on. Hebrews 10.25 Do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves. Do not forsake it. It matters, beloved. If nothing else, it's a testimony to the people who witness you come in here. You know, your, friend, your family and friends, and they say, oh, oh, well, I have to go to church. I'm, well, don't say it like that. I'm going to church. And your friends, your unbelieving friends, will go, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? He said, man, I love this God. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's one of your best opportunities to evangelize, right? I love this God. I seek Him earnestly. He quenches the, the soul thirst that... I have. Verse 3. Because your loving kindness... This, like, this is like one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. Is that true of you? Would God say that was true of you? that you really understand and get that He is better. His loving kindness is better than your very physical life. Beloved, this is where God means to take you and me. 
Okay? Because when you finally get to that place <laughs> where this kind of stuff is, you know, you, you at least begin to entertain it or it's true of you, <laughs> it's like, you know, you'll live, you won't live like the world anymore, that's for sure. You won't live a superficial life anymore, that's for sure. What a beautiful verse. Because of your loving kindness, because your loving kindness is better than life, I will praise you. And I'll just lovingly say, some of you don't believe that's true yet. Some of you don't believe it's true yet. It hasn't changed the way you live and the way you think and the way you do every last thing in your life. I'm just going to say this. Some of you have left your first love. You know the text, right? Revelation? Some of you have left your first love. Do you remember how uh, the Lord Jesus finished off that text in the Revelation? Revelation 2.5 Remember from where you have fallen, He says, repent and do deeds you did at first. To Him who overcomes, eat from the tree of life. All I'm saying to you, if you've left your first love, today is a great time. Today is the perfect time to come back. Confess your sin. Return to where you have fallen from. Make Him first. Let Him be first in your life. Jesus Christ is better than anything this life can give and Jesus Christ is better than anything death can take. It's a beautiful text. The Apostle Paul, you know, you know the story. I bring it up a lot because it's one of my favorite. He's in prison and he writes the book of Philippians. Does anybody know what the book of Philippians is sometimes referred to? It's often called the Epistle of Joy. Okay, <laughs> we're talking about awe, right? <laughs> He's in prison, he's chained to a Roman guy. Uh, he's being slandered in the church at large. He's under the threat of capital punishment. And he writes the epistle of joy. How does a man do this? You know how we are. One little thing goes wrong and we feel sorry for ourselves for six or seven days. We just can't get over it. That the cosmos... Has it treated me like I ought to be treated? Well, this all goes back. It's in your chapter, young adults, uh, for this week. It all goes back to thinking it's about you. <laughs> you know, as Francis Chan says, you've got to get over yourself. You can never be in awe of God if you haven't gotten over yourself. So Paul writes the epistle of joy. You can't take it from him. You can't take his awe. You can't take it. You can't have it. He will not relinquish it. And Philippians 1.21 is arguably the New Testament equivalent of Psalm 63.3. You know Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Same thing. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. It's what David does. It's his lifestyle. He praises God, not only with his lips, but with all of his life. It's why he does what... He does. And sometimes I push you around when you come in here. And it's because this is what I want for you and this is what I want for me. 
I want Psalm 63, 3 to be real. I want Philippians 1.21 to be real. I want it to be more real than anything else in my life. I want this for me, I, and I want this for you. Verses 4 and 5. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. We've been talking about this. We keep seeing this. The psalmists always are blessing God. They're blessing God. What does it mean? It means to honor, praise, adore, extol, worship, exalt, and rejoice in God. That's what it means. Is that what your family and your friends and your colleagues and your fellow students read? Are they reading that off your life? Are they reading that you bless God? Is that coming off your life? Is it coming off your tongue? If I look at your internet history, is that going to bless God? Am I going to see honor, praise, adoration, exaltation, and worship? Am I going to see that? you got to love the Psalms, man. You get into the Psalms and you just get pushed around a lot. <laughs> and it's important um, because our natural inclination is obviously not to seek the Lord. And here's the consummate meaning of blessing God. It, it connotes kneeling. It connotes a life in submission to God. David says, I will lift up my hands in your name. It's just prayer. It's, it's the Jewish posture of prayer, right? So, again, is prayer part of your daily activity? I mean, is it, is it part of your life? You know, I always tell you, um, prayer is not some religious thing I do. It's the conversation I'm in. It's like I don't stop. I don't have a specific place I go. I don't do it for a specific time. I'm just talking and listening to God all day long. Does that make me super spiritual? No, it doesn't. It's just the best way for me to talk to Him and listen to Him, to pray as things come up. Right? You know, you may have a different practice. That's good. It doesn't matter. But we need to be in the conversation. We need to be talking and maybe more importantly, listening to what God has to say to us. So David's in this gut-wrenching trial. What does he say? My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness. It's just the picture of a luxurious banquet. God is His banquet. Had a seminary professor used to say this all the time. God is our banquet. Worship is our banquet. That's our banquet. You know? That's what David is saying to us. He's way past... Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He's in love with God. He's a man in love with God. Verse 6 through 8. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in, in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. When I read this, okay, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but I was, in a, I was in the middle of a great trial one time. I won't give you all the details. 
and and I couldn't sleep. And so I opened my Bible and I happened to turn to Psalm 127.2. Some of you will know it. It says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for God gives to His beloved even in their sleep. You know, as I read about what David was doing in his bed, he's meditating on God. Oh, guess what? God is meditating on you. I told you a couple of weeks ago, as long as God's been God, He's loved you. And your Christianity is negotiable? Your worship is tentative? Really? Seriously? I don't think you understand what I'm saying. David is on his bed. He's meditating on God. And God is meditating on David. He says, I'll help you while you sleep, my beloved. You know, I I, I don't know how to explain modern Christianity. In the modern church, I don't know how to explain it. How it can be so hopelessly superficial and, you know, when God says stuff like this. So David's meditating on God and God is loving David. Same thing's true for you and me, beloved. I heard an old preacher say, talking about meditating on the Word, I think I shared this with you a week or so ago. Simply reading the Scripture is like pouring a glass of wine. It's good. Meditating on the Scripture is like drinking it. I think I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago. I would rather read a short passage and think deeply about it than just read great volumes of text and not linger at all. Let's finish up. Verses 9-11. through But those who seek My life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God Everyone who swears by Him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. We've been touching on this. It's it's like, and I promise you, I haven't been cherry-picking the Psalms. I've just been sort of following God's lead here. But I think in the last three or four, we've seen this, this reality of judgment, you know, that is almost never preached in the modern church, but you just keep seeing it. You just keep seeing it. The enemies of God's people, in this case, King David, are the enemies of God. I have some commentaries on the Psalms by, written by Charles Spurgeon, a great 19th century preacher in England. He says here, the enemies of God will go down into an eternal hell. It's right here, verse 9, they go into the depths of the earth. We've you say, Jim, you've been talking about this a lot. Listen, man, I'm just reading the Psalms to you, man. <laughs> okay? That's all I'm doing. I promise I haven't been cherry-picking them. It's just a repeated refrain in the Psalms. God will judge His enemies. He will do it. So, yeah. I'm not overly interested in the seven habits of incredibly happy people. You know why? I don't need it, man. (laughs) I don't need it. I know Jesus Christ. I pray that you know Jesus Christ. But it's my presumption that not everyone in here does. It's never my presumption that everyone who shows up at church knows Jesus Christ. I mean, I was a guy that showed up 
to church for 28 years. I didn't know him. I didn't know him at all. I knew a few religious things. I could tell you some stories. But I didn't know him. Why is David in awe? He's cultivating it. And when he's in one of the hardest spots of his life, what's he doing? You tell me. I'm done. In one of the hardest places in his life, what is David doing? He's worshiping. He's seeking. He's pursuing. I just want to ask, is that true of you? Is that what it would look like when the trial comes to you? Will you be ready? You know, you can't wait till the trial comes. And you don't know when the trial is going to come. The email be on, may be on your computer, well, on your phone, as soon as I dismiss you. The email may, email may be there. The message may be there. There's some tragedy and calamity in your life or in your family right now. We don't know. Listen, man, you've got to build up. You've got to, in, you've got to look at God. And be ready for when the trial comes. Will you be like Job? What did Job do? And I'm done. What did Job do in the trial? You tell me. What did Job do in the trial? On the day that everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong, except he didn't lose his wife, and he still had his health. Everything else went wrong. So you think about it. Everything else gets stripped away from my life. My children, my wealth, my possessions, everything but my health and my wife. It's gone in one day. And Job does what? He worships. Are you ready? Are you ready to worship God like that? Beloved, that's what Psalm 63 is all about. That's what Psalm 63 is all about. To call us to be ready. To be ready. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this beautiful text. Thank you for your word. Lord, help us to be a seeker. For we know if we are truly a seeker, we will be a finder. You're not playing hide and seek with anybody, you give the promise. All who would seek Me will indeed find Me. So Lord, I pray we would be those kinds of people. We would understand our urgent need for You. Even above food and drink, we need You. We need to be reconciled to our Maker. So Father, I pray You'll drive all of these truths home to us. That we would learn to incarnate Psalm 63. That we could, we could be like David in this way. We pray for Your help, Lord, for we are weak. We are easily distracted. We sometimes look too long and too hard at things in the world. Help us, Lord. Help us to be single-minded. If we've left our first love, Lord, I pray that You would help us to return. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.